Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In 4 weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose 1 to 2 pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to Show 724. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. It is so cold. And actually, you know, it's probably not in the grand scheme of things, but... Minus two for us is, oh, it's really cold, 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 cold. But let's warm your heart with a fantastic science fiction story there by Mark Kenneth Hoover. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show before that then. So, Rubber Monkeys by Mark Kenneth Hoover. That's our main story. Then it is our very own Amy H. Sturgis. We're looking back at genre history. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you'll stick around and join it. So, Rubber Monkeys by Mark Kenneth Hoover. Mark Kenneth Hoover's fiction has appeared in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, Beneath Sister Skies, Strange Horizons, and many others. He is a member of the Science Fiction Writers of America and the WWE. He divides his time between Texas and New Mexico. This is his first sale to Starship Sofa. The story originally appeared in Destination Future 2010. Now this story is narrated by Ricky Lacoste. Now Ricky Waters narrated man. I'm just so happy Ricky's kind of getting on board with the mic and doing some great stories. Give you a heads up. Ricky is a veteran Canadian narrator from Toronto, various short story audio magazines such as Tales to Terrify, the No Sleep Podcast, Cast of Wonders, Pseudopod, and Starship Sofa, of course, as well as lending his voice and voice acting to other projects and podcasts. So, the Starship Sofa is very proud to present Rubber Monkeys 
by Kenneth Mark Hoover, with Isis West Costa, Star Milford, and Ricky Lacoste, narrated by Larry Armstrong. Gillian stood outside the door and rapped on the wooden knocking plate. Permission to enter, sir. Come. She stepped through, came to attention, and saluted. Ensign Hollard, reporting as ordered, Captain. Captain Noah Key scowled at her. Over his shoulder was a bay window, blast shutters open, revealing an orbital docking key, the blue-green limb of the Nala homeworld, and the bristling structure of Endpoint. I sent for you five minutes ago, Ensign. Sorry, sir. I was helping patch a secondary breach in the engineering spindle. Next time I call, I want you before the echo fades. Noted, sir. He pushed a fleet casualty report across his desk. Have you seen this? No, sir. She had been on damage control for the past week, and frankly was amazed Key was in possession of this information. She wondered how he had gotten it. She scrolled through. A third of their fleet? The D'Angelo Consortium of Golden Merchants was listed as destroyed or missing? Included in the report were her six dead shipmates of the Sutherland. We were lucky, he said, if you want to call it that. Gillian knew that was an understatement. The Ruck Holdfast had launched a sneak attack against human colonies on the forward edge, a staggered frontier of suns fifty light years from Earth. It was only by the grace of God and an overdue shakedown cruise that the freighter Sutherland was out when her home port on Camberwell was attacked. Even so, Gillian reflected, we blundered into a task force screening the Ruck Armada. Sutherland hammered it out with two hunter-killers before opening a gate into hyperspace and limping to a safe port. If anyone in their right mind could ever call Endpoint safe... Captain Key cleared his throat. <clears throat> Ensign Hollard. Our orders are clear. We are to effect repairs and render aid to any and all ships that made it out of the forward edge. Possible regrouping for a counterattack, sir? Key's eyes were hard. We won't leave those colonies on the forward edge undefended. If that's what you're asking. Good, Gillian thought. We're going to fight back. What do you require of me, sir? We need supplies and engineering assistance from this port. But if history is any guide, the Nala will assume neutrality in this war before long. He steepled his fingers. Therefore, we must effect repairs before they make that position an official one. I've contacted Endpoint's port administrator, an officer named Tezu, through a local foreign office representative. Tezu has agreed to careen and repair our ship for a price. Ugh. Gillian groaned. The ultra-secretive Nala were notorious for taking advantage of a situation to line their coffers. <sighs> what is it this time, sir? A moon with diamond mountains or an ocean of gold? Nothing so simple, Gillian. They want our germplasm. Endpoint was a massive iron-nickel asteroid anchored to the upper end of a space tower directly over the Nala equator. Hundreds of tunnels and chambers riddled Endpoint. It was a complex geometry of winding caverns and endless twisting passages. Gillian's shuttle slid into an empty bay and locked its nose ring to a magnetic clamp. The trip from the docking key had been routine, so she'd used the opportunity 
to examine the Sutherland from a new perspective and inspect for damage. All heavy tack freighters had a distinctive design. Thrust chambers clustered in an engine spindle. Twenty scarab-shaped cargo holds racked like blisters on the superstructure and a spinning payload housing crew and passengers. There was some minor structural damage, but nothing stopping the ship from being spaceworthy. At least the hypervane array was intact. When activated by Sutherland's navigational AI, the hypervanes were used to open a multidimensional gate into hyperspace. At best speed, Sutherland could jump a light year every five standard days. Before disembarking, Gillian watched automated tugs unload frozen hydrogen into the Sutherland's starved plasma reactors. So far, so good, she thought with satisfaction. The Nala were keeping their end of the bargain. She clambered out of the shuttle's cockpit and met a red-clad figure, his long, white hair tied in a queue. Mirrored lenses grafted to his eye sockets obscured the upper half of his face. The man thrust out a pale, skeletal hand. I'm Thomas Trine, human liaison from the Foreign Office of Interspecies Contact. His speech was stilted, his dialect of Sprach coarse and heavy, reflecting his time spent out on the frontier. Ensign Gillian Hollard at your service. Rough trip, Trine asked. She let out a dry laugh. You might say that. We had one engagement before opening a gate into hyperspace and making our way here. Got hit pretty hard. Treen led her down the corridor, past a stack of consignment pods. I hoped Captain K might wish to meet with the Nalaport administrator himself. Pity he can't be bothered with standard protocol. He's got other things on his mind, Gillian said in defense of her captain. Considering the circumstances, I think I can ably serve in his absence. I didn't mean to impugn your ability, Ensign Hollard, but the fact remains, yours is the first ship to make it this far behind the lines after hostilities began. The Nala are a difficult race. I've been stationed here twenty years, and I'm only beginning to understand them. And it's a matter of time before they declare themselves neutral, making our presence here more difficult. Treen stepped outside a recessed doorway and pressed his palm against the light pad. My office, he explained. As they entered, the lights in the room brightened. Treen led her through and into a Spartan conference room next door. Three Nala occupied one end of the black, lacquered table. They were emaciated, topping two and a half meters each, with long, clean limbs and narrow skulls that were more bone than dun-colored flesh. They more resembled delicate works of art than living organisms. Treen made a formal bow and took a seat at the conference table, motioning for Gillian to sit beside him. The Nala regarded her with studied silence. Their leathery lips were sewn together with platinum wire, wrought in intricate curvilinear designs that spiraled off into the sharp planes of their enigmatic faces. The first alien, his face transfigured by wire and scarification, flicked the bifurcated fingers of his right hand over a harp-keyed module growing out of his hip. Speech emanated from his black eyes, their centers vibrating like speaker cones. 
A language resembling galactic sprach resonated with an accent that echoed the empty inflection of black space and jeweled stars. I am Tezu, port administrator for Endpoint. These are my associates. The tall beings flanking Tezu bent their heads a fraction. Who have a business interest in these proceedings. I'm certain we can reach a mutual understanding, Mr. Tezu. Gillian said. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Gillian. Unimportant under these circumstances. A whisper of dying red suns and stellar nurseries accentuated Tezu's statement. Ensign... The Nala believe a person should never reveal their birth name in front of a stranger. In their rarefied and protective culture, everyone has use names for social contact. She shrugged. I'm a starship officer. Then your use name should reflect that basic Nala language is unpronounceable with human vocal organs. There's a sort of pigeon used to get our point across. You would be woman who walks the stars in the pigeon. Is this acceptable? Gillian hmm. hid her amused skepticism. Yes. Tezu's finger pads played across his harp and his speaker cone eyes tweeted, If I understand correctly... You are puzzled about my desire for human germ plasm. You must admit it's an unusual request. True. However, I would be more than satisfied with cells taken from your dead shipmates. Gillian remembered Captain Key's warning during her briefing. Don't do anything to jeopardize the resupply of our ship, but find out what they really want and why. She looked to Treen, who stared at the tabletop, his hands clenched. No help there. She drew a deep breath and told Tezu, It's a question of morality that gives us pause. Could you explain? Tezu asked. We wouldn't want our reproductive cells used to raise an army of slaves, nor for any medical experimentation without proper authorization. But if you want to use them for basic research purposes on human genetics... That might be acceptable. The slim muscles in Tezu's face knotted with consternation, pulling against the platinum wires. By the secret name of my birth mother, I will not use them for any ignoble purpose. You have my last blood on that. Fine. But I must insist on knowing for what purpose they will be used. A fleeting smile. Sorry, I'm under fairly specific orders. Tezu's fingers flew across his keyboard and something of his impatience carried through the modulated speech. We are loading hydrogen fuel aboard your ship. We will complete all hull and superstructure repairs sustained from your engagement with the Rook Hunter Killer Squadrons. Our government will soon claim neutrality in a war sweeping through this section of the Orion Arm. We are doing you a great service, and taking an even greater diplomatic risk by helping you. Gillian had played enough late-night shipboard Texas Hold'em to know when she had a winning hand. Tezu was desperate to acquire their germ plasm. That made him easy prey. I appreciate your good faith, uh, from the secret name of my birth mother. 
However, I insist on knowing why you want these biological samples. Otherwise, no deal. That's final. Tezu held a brief conference with his associates in their own tongue. When he finished, he told Gillian, Art! I wish to derive beautiful works of art, using your germplasm as a base source. Surely that's plain enough for an ignorant, hairless ape to understand? Treen gave a delicate cough. Ensign, it's not an insult. He's simply describing your evolutionary heritage in his own language. Her eyes were narrow. Sure he is. Compared to Tezu and the other Nala, we are ignorant apes. His brain is a dense silicon unit with carbon fiber synapses, quite unlike the soft bicameral organic structure we possess. Gillian knew the Nala used their bodies to house complex and intricate technological architectures. Their startling appearance was less the result of evolutionary forces than deliberate surgical procedures driven by a cultural necessity. But that didn't excuse bad manners. Then again, Tezu wasn't a diplomat trained in the art of thrust and parry like Thomas Treen. Perhaps ill-mannered bureaucrats remained ill-mannered bureaucrats, she mused, no matter what the species. Which raised another question. Why was Treen always going out of his way to apologize for them? Nevertheless, it was up to her to find common ground. She rallied. Exactly how would our germplasm be used as art? I could show you sculptures rendered from an original template I had access to. That might save both time and explanation. Tezu rose from the table. Accompany me woman who walks the stars, and I will show you unprecedented beauty. They huddled near the doorway. Gillian waited to see who went through first. When no one moved, she headed for the door. One of the other Nala rushed forward and bumped her out of the way. Tezu and the third Nala pushed past her and into the corridor. Heavens, excuse me for getting in your way. She snapped. Treen raised his hands in a placating gesture. Ensign, millennia ago, the Nala were groundside tunnel dwellers. Those who emerged first from the tunnel entrances ran a greater risk of being killed by topside predators. She laughed. <laughs> so it's the reverse of opening a door for a lady? All right, then. When in Rome. She nudged Treen aside in a polite way and followed Tezu. There isn't much activity going on around here. She observed. The corridors of Endpoint were eerily empty. Treen fell in step beside her. You caught us in a rare downtime. This tower is so fragile that tidal forces from the sun and moons easily warp its enormous structure. Elevator cars are run at certain hours to alleviate vibration on the rail and reduce resonance. Even so, this section remains closed to all but the most important visitors. Ah, here we are. The companions crouched on either side of the doorway, heads touching to the floor. Tezu sailed through, 
oblivious to their obeisance, Treen bowed to them. Gillian followed up his example. Once inside, Treen pulled Gillian aside and said low, Ensign, this is Endpoint's agricultural center. Gillian wondered at his nervousness as she entered the main arboretum. All she saw were species of plants cultivated in a meticulous, loving fashion. There wasn't any reason to... Oh, my God! She stumbled to a halt when she came abreast of the first form hidden behind a copse of swaying copper flame trees. Her blood froze. They can't be real, Treen said soft. Yes, I'm afraid they are. Aren't they exquisite? Pride filled Tezu's synthetic voice. He caressed one of the grotesque shapes surrounded by liquid bubble flowers. Gillian fought down her nausea and forced herself to examine each specimen in turn. A physician's caduceus, arms intertwined around a wooden pole. The body flattened until you could see the inner organs working beneath the translucent skin. Another, legs and arms braided in nightmarish fashion, a long noodle-shaped head sprouting from a thick neck and drooping like a heavy balloon. Ornately carved onyx benches supported its long, sinuous shape. Knees trembling, Gillian followed a flagstone path through more samples of horror. There was a rich, organic smell here, along with the aroma of sweat and blood and the muted sound of dripping water on aluminum. One human was nothing more than a sphere of hair and flesh floating in an ice-blue suspension bath. Another's skin had been carefully scraped until white, gleaming bone was revealed. It hung from metal rafters like a moth, living its hellish existence with splayed limbs. Behind, a geodesic window revealed the starry depths of space. Tezu's fingers played along his hip. Unlike our species, human bone is extraordinarily resilient. The skill is to produce a piece not only aesthetically pleasing, but medically viable. It's an immense challenge, working within the limited organic matrix of a rubber monkey. But that's part of the overall enjoyment. Tezu is the undisputed master of this new art form. Treen weathered Gillian's cold stare. These two Nala are his personal assistants. They use their bioengineering skills to bring his dreams to life and sell the unique pieces to collaborators on their home world. He's an artist, Ensign. Whatever else you may think of him. Treen looked down. Or of me. You've kept the secret, Trine. Gillian wanted to strike the man. I bet the foreign office doesn't know about this little cottage industry. Tell me, what's your motivation? A sales commission, perhaps? He frowned. How little you understand. The Nala's concept of beauty is alien to ours. Because, well... They are aliens. Don't judge them by your own provincial attitudes, Ensign Hollard. That sort of racial and species-centric thinking is very tiring. Go to hell. She spotted a teak 
frame supporting a human shape that flowed down the ladder like frozen ice. Human ice. The face had one large brown eye left intact, an accent in the graphic scheme of ice. A tear slid down the corrugated folds of flesh as the pupil stared back at her. My God! She croaked, shaken at the faint resemblance of the jawline and skin tone. It's... it's you, Trine. They're... they're all you. Tezu is no longer satisfied using clowns, he said. He wants new genetic material to interbreed and derive different organic themes. It will cost you nothing, Ensign. Are you insane? Do you expect us to hand over sperm and ova so the Nella can grow human bonsai sculptures? She faced Tezu with anger. Forget it, Tezu. We refuse your offer. Tezu was unmoved by her emotional display. Then we demand you leave Endpoint before your repairs are completed. If you refuse, we will impound your ship. Then would you be easy prey for the Rook Hunter Killer Squadrons roaming the interstellar lanes? I knew your species was avaricious, but I never thought they would resort to extortion. Tezu towered over her. You are as naive as an eggling if you believe there is any other reason for existence. He jerked his sewn lips into a hideous smile, the skin pulling tight against the platinum wire. Especially between prospective allies and business partners. Captain. You can't bow to their pressure. Gillian pleaded. Key had gone to Endpoint and seen the organic sculptures for himself. He visited the nursery where prototypes were prepared. Young children and babies, eyes vacant. Some had no eyes at all, as they were injected with bone-softening enzymes and bioengineering cocktails to plasticize their bodies. Many were bound with soft ropes to gently torque the limbs into fragile, delicate forms of slow growth. When he returned to Sutherland, grim-faced, Key had ordered an emergency meeting in his cabin. Gillian stared out the bay window, eyeing the blue geodesic dome on endpoint that housed Tezu's chamber of horrors. Ensign? Key rumbled. If Tezu pulls his repair teams off our ship... We're dead. Not figuratively, but literally. Our most pressing problem is getting Sutherland spaceworthy so she can rendezvous with the fleet. He gave a heavy sigh. But I understand your concern on a humanitarian level. What do you think, Doctor? Do you see any way out of this? Sarai Nordholm was a broad-faced flight surgeon who had accompanied Key to Endpoint. It's an interesting moral question, sir. When does a human being stop being human? These growths are unaware of their surroundings, possessing only autonomic brain functions. They can't think or reason as we know. That's not true. Gillian shot back. I saw one of them cry. They're very aware of their situation. And what about Trine? He bartered himself to keep Tezu happy. We haven't been the only human vessel to visit Endpoint in the past two decades he's been posted there. 
He's supplied Tezu with his own cells for experimentation to keep Tezu happy and from preying on other ships. Okay, maybe he gets points for altruism, but he needs to answer for what he's done. Dr. Nordholm agreed. However, as far as the sculptures go, while they're alive, they're not actually human in my view. Would you give Tezu your germplasm, Doctor? Careful, Ensign. Nordholm maintained her equanimity. Captain, I propose we leave it up to the crew. We're on a war footing. Sacrifice should be the order of the day. I'll keep your proposal in mind, Doctor. Key's voice was dangerously brittle. When decisions on this ship are made by committee. Nordholm flinched under the tongue lashing. Yes, sir. Sorry, sir. Key brooded. <sighs> I have no intention of handing over our genetic material for Tezu and his weird sculptures. In my opinion, what's on Endpoint is as far removed from art as you could possibly get. I don't give a damn about alien perspective or cultural differences between species. What he's doing is wrong. What are you going to do, Captain? A cold smile stole across his face. We're going to give Tezu a lesson on what it really means to be human. I'm glad you've decided to honor our agreement, Tezu tweeted. This act will strengthen relations between our species and become a foundation for future business enterprises. Tezu and Thomas Treen stood beside the main airlock, watching delivery of 20 glass plates. Tezu's assistants prepared to verify the genetic material enclosed therein. Despite personal misgivings, I have my orders. Gillian grumbled. She handed Tezu an invoice. Twenty samples in this metal case. That's the extent of our crew. Living and dead. Tezu's assistants revealed their impatience to see if the samples were viable. And I am pleased to report my engineering teams have completed all preliminary and secondary repairs on your freighter. Tezu beamed, his lips and facial muscles working underneath the self-inflicted mutilation. We are looking forward to... Ensign Hollard. A communicator blared inside Gillian's shuttle. This is Sutherland. Emergency. Reply immediately. She ducked inside the shuttle's cockpit, the metal case with germplasm plates remaining in her grasp. Ensign Hollard reporting, Captain. Ensign, we're seeing the radiation signature of a Rook Dreadnought opening a gate from hyperspace. Make that two Dreadnoughts. Ensign, we've been betrayed by the Nala. Return to the ship immediately. She faced Tezu red with anger. Damn you, Tezu! You promised to keep the Rook at bay as long as we upheld our end of the bargain! But I didn't... Alarms blared throughout Endpoint. Nala ran up and down the corridor. Tezu spun around in a circle as if in a daze. An officer approached him, jabbering in their incomprehensible language. Treen's jaw dropped as he picked up some of what they said. The alien's face was reflected in his mirrored lenses. Tezu, did you abrogate the agreement you had with Captain K? Tezu's fingers flew across his keyboard in a blur. Of course not. I don't know what's going on, but look out! <laughs> Gillian smashed Treen in the jaw with the metal case. 
His knees sagged as she manhandled him into the shuttle. She slammed her palm on the emergency clothes and the door snapped shut on Tezu's perplexed expression. She hit the override and powered the shuttle out of the docking key. Treen lay at her feet groaning. She ignited the thrusters and piloted the shuttle towards Sutherland, watching chaos unfold on the freighter's bridge through the viewer. Ignite your fusion lamps, engineer, Captain Key said, his face outwardly calm on Gillian's viewer. We'll match velocity and pick up Ensign Hollard on the way out. The engineer, monitoring the fuel flow to the fusion reactors, said, Sir, there are automated tugs in the vicinity moving cargo pods. Magnetic moorings on the key are clamped to our hull. Shear them, engineer. Yes, sir. Sutherland shuddered as her main engines ignited and the magnetic cleats were torn away. Gillian watched a robot tug slam into the port side of the merchant freighter, back towards the superstructure where the scarab-shaped holds were racked like blisters. She could imagine the noise ringing throughout the hall from the collision. Sutherland's engines were firing, but it took time to push her mass up the acceleration curve. Gillian matched speed, docked her shuttle, and flung open the hatch. Dr. Nordholm and a medico were standing by to hustle Treen to sickbay. What you've done is beyond the pale, Ensign, Treen said, holding his head. You've set back Nala human relations, possibly beyond repair. Dr. Nordholm, please escort Mr. Trine to sickbay. If he argues, have security put him in irons. Right away, Ensign. Gillian made sure they were on their way before she ran for the bridge. Key snapped as she came into the control center. We have to get away from the Nala homeworld. We can't use our hyperveins this close to a gravitational well. Gillian saw that Key had purposely spoken into an open mic so anyone on endpoint could hear the decisions he was making in real time. She hid her bemused smile and assumed her station. A bridge communicator crackled as a viewer revealed the dun-colored visage of Tezu. Captain K, I insist upon the secret name of my blood mother. Endpoint had nothing to do with this rook ambush. Tezu, Nala and Earth are now in a legal state of war. I do not have the authority from my consortium to broker a peace accord under such circumstances. He ignored Tezu's howls of outrage. Gillian watched her gravitic sensors. They were much too close to Nala for the navigational AI to use their hypervanes and let them escape into hyperspace. Just like the time we were jumped by the hunter-killer squadron over Camberwell, she thought. Except this time, we have less opportunity to make a clean getaway. Watch those sensors, Ensign. Key snapped. I'm on it, sir. Soto voce... He told her to turn the ship 40 degrees to starboard with negative azimuth coordinates for the stern, space normal speed. She complied, hoping Tezu and his people were too preoccupied to notice the subtle maneuver or interpret Sutherland's final orientation when she came to rest. Captain, Tezu spoke through his speaker cones. This is a terrible mistake. Besides... A single merchant freighter doesn't have the capability to make war. 
Therefore, your threat has no value. He leaned forward until his body filled Tezu's viewer, blocking Gillian's work at her station. Would you like a demonstration of the ship's wartime capabilities, Port Administrator? Without turning around, he said, Communications officer, remove all safety interlocks from the comm laser. I... no, wait! Tezu shouted. Interlock safety's bypassed, the comm officer said abruptly. Fire. At this close range, Sutherland's comm laser could punch a hole through a ship's hull or pierce a radiation shield. The fragile geodesic dome on endpoint was no match for that kind of energy. The structure blew out into a hard vacuum, taking Tezu's artworks along with it. Captain! Someone on the bridge shouted. It's not the Rook who are opening a gate into the system, it's it's two of our own ships! Key's face broke into a wide smile. You don't say. Imagine that. Personnel on the bridge cheered. Two tack merchant freighters slid out of twin rips in the fabric of space, spilling radiation from their white-hot hypervanes. It's the Awabi! <gasps> Flanked by the Golden Cloud! Gillian cried. Helmsman, cut your engines. The big freighter coasted at speed. A commander from the Awabi, a dark-skinned woman with iron-gray hair, appeared on the secondary view screen. Captain K, do you require tactical assistance? He grinned at her, hands on hips. I'm glad to see you made it out of Camberwell alive, Commander Huxley. Tezu interrupted, openly suspicious of this forced interplay. They are your own ships. But how did they mask their energy signatures? Uh Uh-oh. He's on to us. Gillian readied herself. Maybe Tezu realizes we semaphored one another with our hyperveins while Awabi and the Golden Cloud hung outside the Nala system. That's how Keith knew how many ships were lost at Camberwell and the secret plan to regroup the consortium while I was working damage detail. A silent but effective communication had gone on by blocking Starlight and sending Morse using hyperveins from the freighters while they were in system. Huxley said, Tezu, we wanted to field test our new masking procedure. Yes, we found a way to modulate our energy signature and make it appear we were Rook Dreadnoughts. Captain K, we've been marking a navigational tramline in order to pay the Rook Holdfast a visit. You're welcome to come along and see if we can't make them accept a peace treaty on our terms. Tezu stabbed angrily at the translation module on his hip. The resulting galactic sprotch was garbled. You'll do more than that, Captain. You've disputed, disrupt, disrupted our base, fired upon endpoint, created terrorism and sabotage, and destroyed droid and destroyed valuable private property. I hereby impound your ship under the neutral flag of my government, along with all other ships of your your of your convoy. I. Uh, Tezu's fingers stopped moving across the harp strings, and his eye cones fell silent. Gillian watched Tezu on the main view screen, thinking for the first time in his life the port administrator probably wished he could vent a very loud scream using his own vocal cords. Captain K. Tezu's manner was subdued. You wouldn't dare fire on this structure. Sutherland lay with her stern pointed at the space elevator. 
Tezu. I lift one finger, and we'll cut it like a blowtorch through paper ribbon. But you'll destroy Endpoint? Along with millions on your homeworld, after that space tower falls around your equator like a noose. Not to mention the resulting environmental damage. Tezu shook with suppressed anger. You are a dangerously insane species. No more than someone who twists humans into organic pretzels for profit, Tezu. Tezu walked off camera, returned shortly. You leave me no other option but to defend Endpoint with our own weapons. Gillian leaned towards Captain Keat and whispered fast. Sir, the Nala are many things, but they're not poker players. Understood, Ensign. Tezu, it looks like a standoff, which means I automatically win. I doubt the authorities will take kindly to a port administrator who uses extortion to line his own pockets. Come to think of it, if you press the issue, I'll quarantine your entire system. I have the authority as master trader of the Adangel Consortium of Golden Merchants to do that. No more interstellar trade, Tezu. The Nala will be isolated and alone. And poor. I will destroy your ship, Captain K. Think twice before you try it, Station Master. We haven't been sitting idly by ourselves. Tezu looked off camera, saw the other two ships had their sterns oriented toward the space elevator. Oh, and uh, you might want to rethink that neutrality question, Tezu. With our three ships meeting here, Endpoint has effectively become a staging area in our war against the Rook. In other words, your neutrality has been rendered obsolete. Welcome aboard, ally. Tezu glanced off screen a second time. Nala were running amok in the background. There appeared to be some sort of conflict happening. I'll get back to you. The screen went black. He said to no one in particular, Just wait until the Ruck see what one of our ships can do when we use the magnetic rings to laser our plasma fire onto them. They caught us by surprise the first time. The Nala are no better. Did they think, because we're merchants, we wouldn't fight back? Incredible ignorance on both their part, I must say. Gillian noticed a commotion near the airlock she had used when entering Endpoint. Captain! She pointed. Look! A struggling figure was thrown out of the airlock by two space-suited figures. It writhed briefly on the airless landscape and became still. A new Nala port administrator appeared on the Sutherland's forward view screen. It was one of Tezu's former assistants with his companion standing idly behind. Captain K, I have assumed operational command of Endpoint. The Nala said. I am the new Tezu. Though I do not fully understand why you find these artworks morally offensive, I would be grateful if this incident were forgotten and profitable relations between our species resumed. I'll consider it. The new Tezu pressed ahead. I wish you would, and quickly. Interstellar strife affects our profit margin. As a concession, we will not require payment for Sutherland's repair and resupply. To further manifest our good faith, I will speak my personal name so that you will have a blood noose over me and all subsequent generations of my family... He held up his hand. Uh, that won't be necessary, Tezu. I'll 
take your word that you'll honor our new contract. Benalla expressed relief both in his manner and the tonal frequencies emanating from his carbon fiber speaker cones. I hope your species will continue to trade with us. May we have word of a new agreement between our people. Not so fast. What about the human sculptures Tezu sold? I promise from the secret name of my ancestral home they will be destroyed and their owners recompensed from my own monetary fund. Humanely destroyed. Key suggested. And the remains disposed of with reverence. Naturally. I'll expect proof of that when we return, Tezu. Captain K, are you really going to the Ruck Holdfast? We are. No one who has attempted this has ever returned. Key was defiant. We will return, Tezu. Count on it. Done, Captain K, and welcome. Before you go, may I inquire as to the health and status of our human liaison, Thomas Trine? He must answer for his actions to his own foreign office, but I expect he'll be allowed to return to Endpoint in the future, albeit on a probationary basis, if your ambassadors press for his reinstatement. Excellent. He was a valued liaison and something of a personal friend. If there is nothing more, I wish you a safe and profitable trip, Captain. And point out. Gillian leaned her head back. Whew. I never want to go through that again. Oh, by the way, Captain, we're far enough from the gravitational well to open the gate into hyperspace. Awabi and Golden Cloud are signaling their readiness to follow. You did very well. Ensign hollered. I can almost overlook your propensity to speak when not spoken to. Almost. Sorry, sir. He smiled at her. Now, Gillian, are you ready to pay the rook a little visit? More than ready. Good. <laughs> Captain Key snorted with derision. Rubber monkeys, indeed. Ensign, let's go make our position known to the entire galaxy. Yes, sir. The Sutherland unfurled her hypervanes and jumped. There you go. Mark, 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 Mark. Thank you very much. Get some more stories sent in there. That would be fantastic. We'll have a look at them. And Ricky, big freezing cold hook to you, lad. Thank you very much. You're just amazing. Thank you. So now it is how very own. Amy H. Sturgis, Ames. Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back at genre history. I wish you the happiest of New Year's. It's amazing to think that 2024 is upon us. And if you'll indulge me for just a moment, I'd like to say I'm really grateful for some of the things that came my way in 2023. It was a rather intense and exciting year. With my co-editor, the fantastic Emily Strand, I was fortunate in publishing two anthologies of academic essays with experts from around the world with the scholarly publisher Vernon Press. One of those was Star Trek, Essays Exploring the Final Frontier, and the second was Star Wars, Essays Exploring a Galaxy Far, Far Away. I also published a couple of peer-reviewed scholarly essays in anthologies, 
One of those was Beyond the Wilds and the Waves, Reevaluating Archer, the Armory, and Enterprise, about the television series Star Trek Enterprise. That was in the Star Trek Essays Exploring the Final Frontier anthology. And also an essay called Dark Arts and Secret Histories Investigating Dark Academia, which was in the anthology Potterversity. Lastly, I also published a mainstream essay, a pedagogical piece, that is up on the website Reading Shirley Jackson in the 21st Century. And that piece is called Teaching Shirley Jackson's Hangs a Man. And I say all of this, first of all, to invite you to check out my work. <laughs> uh, all of the details are available on my website, amyhsturgis.com, and those things that are posted online also are linked, so you can find those easily. But also because this brings me around to talking about Shirley Jackson. Shirley Jackson appears in both my Dark Academia essay and, of course, the essay about teaching hangs a man. And here in 2024, I'm embarking on another big research and writing project, and Shirley Jackson plays quite a role in that as well. In addition, in January 2024, I have the great delight of teaching Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. And so all roads, it seems to me, are currently leading me to Shirley Jackson. I'm in my Shirley Jackson era, so to speak. And so it was a natural choice to want to focus on her today. And yes, I am going to be talking about science fiction, because Shirley Jackson, known for bending genres and blending genres, also wrote science fiction. And I will most definitely be talking about that. So, let's get this Shirley Jackson party started, shall we? Since I mentioned I'm teaching The Haunting of Hill House right now, let's start there, and then I'm going to circle back around for a bit of a retrospective. The Haunting of Hill House was a critical and popular success for Shirley Jackson when it was published in 1959. In fact, it became a finalist for the National Book Award, which as you might imagine, is something of a rare distinction for a genre novel, for a gothic haunted house story. And both the novel's reputation and Shirley Jackson's reputation continue to grow today. Let me say first a couple of words about the novel's reputation. It continues to move readers and prominent creators as well. Authors continue to recommend it, and storytellers continue to be inspired by it. For example, in 2018, the New York Times asked famous writers to name the book that most terrified them. This piece was called, 13 Authors Recommend the Most Frightening Books They've Ever Read. And both Neil Gaiman and Carmen Maria Machado chose The Haunting of Hill House. Creators such as... Author Stephen King, who wrote extensively about The Haunting of Hill House in his book about the horror genre, Dance Macabre, and filmmaker Guillermo del Toro, who wrote an introduction to a new edition of The Haunting of Hill House, have claimed that Shirley Jackson and this novel in particular are key influences on them. 
And The Haunting of Hill House has inspired two film adaptations, The Haunting from 1963 and The Haunting from 1999, as well as a Netflix miniseries, The Haunting of Hill House from 2018. So storytellers keep returning to gain inspiration from and to adapt or reimagine The Haunting of Hill House. More proof. Elizabeth Hand, best-selling writer, the author of works that have won the World Fantasy Award four times, the Nebula Award twice, the International Horror Guild Award twice, the James Tiptree Jr. Award, now the Otherwise Award, the Mythopoeic Fantasy Award, and, appropriately enough, the Shirley Jackson Award, that one three times. Well, in 2023, she became the very first author authorized by the Shirley Jackson estate to write an official work responding to Jackson's fiction. A Haunting on the Hill by Elizabeth Hand returns to Hill House 60 years after the events of the original novel. It's significant a modern master like Elizabeth Hand would do this. We're seeing a multi-generational response to an ongoing appreciation of The Haunting of Hill House and, of course, Shirley Jackson. To talk a moment about Shirley Jackson's growing reputation, in recent years her work, including The Haunting of Hill House, has been collected into Library of America special editions. That's a big deal as the Library of America seeks, quote, to preserve America's literary and cultural heritage, end quote and chooses what I would call Big L literature for its authoritative editions. So again, this is a kind of genre work goes mainstream, reputational success story. Increased study of Shirley Jackson and her works has led to the founding of new organizations dedicated to studying her, and conferences devoted to her, and even an academic journal in 2023, Shirley Jackson Studies debuted online, and I highly recommend it. Go check it out. A thumbnail sketch of her work, how she is best remembered and how her legacy is understood, may be found in the description of the Shirley Jackson Awards, which are given for categories such as novel, novella, novelette, short fiction, single author collection, and edited anthology, presented at ReaderCon, an annual conference on imaginative literature, every year since these awards were established in 2007. The awards are described thusly, quote, in recognition of the legacy of Shirley Jackson's writing, and with permission of the author's estate, the Shirley Jackson Awards, Inc. has been established for outstanding achievement in the literature of psychological suspense, horror, and the dark fantastic, end quote. Okay, so let me back up here and give you a bit of an introduction. Shirley Jackson lived from 1916 to 1965, and she was a U.S. author of six novels, two memoirs, more than 200 short stories, and other works, such as A Salem Witch Trials History for Young Readers. During her lifetime, multiple stories of hers were chosen to appear in Best American Short Stories anthologies, 
One of her stories won the Mystery Writers of America Edgar Allan Poe Award, and other stories of hers were nominees for that award. And the New York Times Book Review named multiple works of hers, including novels, as best fiction of a given year. In short, she was an author of high reputation during her lifetime, and that was just the start of the appreciation of her work. So allow me to give a quick rundown of some of the high points of her literary achievement. First and foremost, the short story, The Lottery, which is often read, well, it's read in a variety of ways, as folk horror, as New England Gothic, but also as anthropological science fiction. It's a short story that was first published in The New Yorker on June 26, 1948, and it's now one of the most famous and anthologized works of American literature, full stop. It's been adapted also for radio, stage, television, film, and even opera. It's a story about a small U.S. town where the locals, to ensure a good harvest and fight bad omens, they hold an annual tradition known as the lottery, which, spoilers, turns out to be the ritual stoning to death of one of its citizens. It's often read as a critique of blindly or ignorantly following tradition. Hey, this is the way it's always been done. We'll just keep doing it. The mob mentality and the resulting scapegoating and violence that comes of it. How quickly neighbor can turn on neighbor in the name of, well, this is just traditional. It's a dark, powerful gut punch of a story. And it's vague timing. We're not quite sure when it's set. Intentionally vague in that sense. So it can be read in parable form as well. It's evergreen. It's always relevant. And it's very powerful. And I also want to mention two other short stories of particular interest to science fiction folks like you and me. First, I want to mention The Missing Girl. This is a story that is directly related to some of my research and writing right now. And it's also a gut punch of a story. It first appeared in Fantasy and Science Fiction in 1957. And the premise of the story is that, apparently, a girl has gone missing from summer camp. Authorities are trying to determine when she was last seen, and they discover, maybe literally, maybe metaphorically, she was never really seen at all. How could a little girl be invisible? Did she even ever exist? Like many of the great Shirley Jackson stories, it's very hard to define and put in a category or limit to one genre, but it's certainly of interest to science fiction fans. And lastly, I want to talk about the short story Bulletin. And for this, I'm going to first go to the go-to biography of Shirley Jackson, that is Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life, by Ruth Franklin from 2016, and I want to share this passage with you, talking about science fiction and Shirley Jackson. Franklin introduces, quote, Bulletin, a whimsical vignette from 1953 about a professor who travels ahead to the year 2123. 
His time machine returns empty, but for a few fragmentary documents that show both how drastically the world has changed and how it hasn't, such as an American history exam that refers to Roosevelt's son and Churchill III, and contains a list of true or false statements that includes, quote, the cat was at one time tame and used in domestic service, end quote. And, by the way, Franklin links the satirical science fiction in the short story Bulletin to one of Jackson's later novels, which I'll discuss in just a minute, The Sundial, which is set in a Cold War-inspired apocalyptic moment. I should note that the vibe of Bulletin, the short story, reminds me of Melanta Tauta by Edgar Allan Poe, which I talked about ages ago on Starship Sofa. Both use the trope of the future, looking back on the past, which is in fact our present, and getting things tellingly wrong. And just for a quick taste, here is the opening paragraph of Shirley Jackson's bulletin. Quote, Editor's note, The time travel machine sent out recently by this university has returned, unfortunately without Professor Browning. Happily for the university space department, however, Professor Browning's briefcase, set just inside the time travel element, returned, containing the following papers that bear ample evidence of the value to scientific investigation of sending Professor Browning on this much-discussed trip into the 22nd century. It is assumed by members of the Space Department that these following papers were to serve as the basis for notes for the expected lecture by Professor Browning, which will now, of course, be indefinitely postponed, end quote. And FYI, I am reading that bulletin from the collection Let Me Tell You, News Stories, Essays, and Other Writings by Shirley Jackson, edited by Lawrence Jackson Hyman and Sarah Hyman DeWitt, and published in 2015. So I would like to wrap this up by giving a lightning round tour of Jackson's six major novels, all of which span genres, but all of which are also clearly gothic works, works centering women's voices, works with biting social critique, and deep psychological exploration of big questions. I recommend every single one. So, without further ado, her first novel was The Road Through the Wall from 1948. It's a dark work of social commentary, a novel about the insular, upper-middle-class Pepper Street, which is separated from a less affluent neighborhood by the wall of an estate, The residents are very self-satisfied and narrow-minded and prejudiced and greedy and judgmental, and Jackson admitted writing this work in part to get back at her parents in thinking about how and where she grew up and the culture around her. The wall is going to come down, as it turns out, and the residents are very worried about what kind of unsavory elements will find their way into the neighborhood. But surprise, the unsavory elements are already there on Pepper Street. And the novel traces what this means from gossip and casual cruelty to ultimately murder and suicide. 
the next novel may be my favorite of hers, although ugh, that's really hard to choose. Certainly, it's at the heart of what I'm working on right now, and that is Hangs a Man from 1951, a disturbing study of a traumatized and troubled college freshman's psychological unraveling in the midst of her search for self. It's a really powerful work. Trauma, unreliable narrator, disturbed psychology, coming of age, and transformation. The third novel is The Bird's Nest, 1954. Study the young woman with multiple personality disorder. At the time, this was a relatively new idea. And the focus is on the psychological and mental health issues. It's dark and unsettling. Her last three works all feature a house as a main character. The first is The Sundial from 1958. Twelve rather unlovable individuals who are in conflict with each other are cooped up together in a mansion waiting for the end of the world in an imminent apocalyptic scenario. Does the apocalypse come? We never find out. That really isn't the point. The characters, the relationships and conflicts, what we discover about the human condition as these people are anticipating the end of the world, that's what it is all about. It's creepy, but it's also darkly funny in terms. And it has a distinctly weird flavor. The Haunting of Hill House came in 1959. What What a grand read it is. It follows three strangers, Eleanor, Theo, and Luke, who have been invited by an anthropologist named Dr. Montague to spend time with him at the reputedly haunted Hill House, researching it in a methodical, scientific way, and its reaction to their presence. And again, it is about the characters and about what we learn about them through their relationship to the house. Lastly, we have We Have Always Lived in the Castle from 1962. It tells a story from the perspective of a troubled teen girl who lives in isolation with her agoraphobic sister and her ailing uncle in their family home. They're ostracized. They're set apart from their local village made the other, made outsiders, for the last six years, ever since a terrible tragedy took the lives of the rest of the family. Shirley Jackson is often praised by critics and scholars for her opening paragraphs, which set the mood, give us a great deal of information, and grab us refusing to let go. And certainly, We Have Always Lived in the Castle opens with one of these iconic introductory passages. So I'm going to share that here. Quote, my name is Mary Catherine Blackwood. I am 18 years old and I live with my sister Constance. I have always thought that with any luck at all, I could have been born a werewolf because the two middle fingers on both my hands are the same length, but I have had to be content with what I had. I dislike washing myself and dogs and noise. I like my sister Constance and Richard Plantagenet, and Ammonita phalloides, the death cup mushroom. Everyone else in my family is dead, end quote. Haunting stuff there, just beautifully done. 
So I started out pointing out that I am currently teaching The Haunting of Hill House. So I think I will circle back around here at the end and share that opening passage as well. Of these opening words to The Haunting of Hill House, Stephen King wrote the following in Dance Macabre. Quote, I think there are few, if any, descriptive passages in the English language that are any finer than this. It is the sort of quiet epiphany every writer hopes for, words that somehow transcend words, words which add up to a total greater than the sum of the parts, end quote. So here from Shirley Jackson, the opening of The Haunting of Hill House. Quote, No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood for eighty years and might stand for eighty more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. End quote. And with that, I end my tribute to Shirley Jackson, an author of the Gothic, an author of science fiction, and an author who has inspired many other storytellers, and whose reputation only continues with very good reason to grow. I hope you have enjoyed this, and I look forward to joining you again soon with something completely different when we gather again here in this new year to take another look back on genre history. Thank you. Hey, William, first one of 2024. Thank you indeed. Eh? We're getting older, lass. <laughs> Thank you. Eames, it's a pleasure. Thank you indeed. That is the show. Listen, before I go, a big thank you to everyone who kind of helped, you know, when I, I, I sent out a little email saying, you know, help with the beginning of the year so we can kind of get through this year. So, you know, if you if you kind of donated, thank you so much. Honestly, it's amazing. If you want to kind of help with, like you say, just keep going. I think it's about 17 years or something, man. It's been going, for God's sake. Help out on Patreon. Come to the front of the website, Patreon or PayPal. That would be fantastic. Monthly donations just are the bedrock of how Starship's been going so long. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Thank you for listening. Time soon, can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from best I'm moving slow, so I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. 
my signal getting through. Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. I wanna talk to you. Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.